were flying about the cabin. People were screaming. Everything was spinning. The steward was bleeding on the floor. The wake caused such turbulence, so powerful, that it caused the aircraft to flip and to flip again and then to flip another time. From the ground, you would have been able to see it flip four or five times. And then, in a flash, those on board realized how relatively unimportant were the broken china and stemware, how small the problem of their cuts and bruises as together they realized that all the engines had stopped. It was a complete power failure. They were in a tailspin, barreling downward to the ground faster and faster in a nosedive. In just moments, the plane had dropped over 10,000 feet and was accelerating toward the earth. And nothing mattered at that point unless the pilots could find a way to restart the engines. And in some ways, it can be a picture of the church. Sometimes it's a picture of our spiritual life and our mission as Christians. You can imagine a recent graduate from business school pushing his way into the cabinet of that jet and recommending to the pilots some books or resources to improve the warmth and welcome of the company's stewards, to broaden the reach of their marketing, to improve their customer experience using a trusted three-point plan to pull together synergies and leverage best practices to shore up core competencies and develop buy-in from key constituencies. But the plane is hurtling toward the earth, and none of that is going to help unless they restart the engines. Do you need to restart your engines? Is your worship empty or hollow? Does scripture not have much effect on you anymore? Are you distracted from God's mission and purpose for your life? You know, there are times when, seem, when God can seem in, incredibly distant and our hearts can grow very cold and very hard towards him. There are lots of books and podcasts out there that will tell you how to improve your marriage, how to improve your family, how to improve your parenting, how to improve your church, how to have a breakthrough in your spiritual life, and yet none of that will really do much unless you can find a way spiritually to restart the engines. For that, we're going to have to look back at something that God did definitively in the early church, at the time in which he started the church's engines for the very first time. We're going to look back at the Feast of Pentecost, the Jewish festival of weeks, or Shavuot, a Jewish festival that brought Jews and Jewish converts from throughout, throughout the Jewish diaspora to Jerusalem to worship. It was a Very early in the life of the church, Jesus had been crucified just seven weeks earlier. He had risen, walked with them for a season, then ascended into heaven and taken his seat at the right hand of the Father and had promised to send power when the Holy Spirit would fall upon them. He had promised to start the engines. What happens when the engines start? When the Spirit of God falls on the church? Let's read. This is the Acts Acts. Uh, The Acts of the Apostles, the second chapter, we're going to read the first 18 verses. If you want to follow in your pew Bible, that's page 1692, or you can follow along on the screens as I read. When the day of Pentecost came, they, the early Christians, were all together in one place, and suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came down to rest on each of them. 
And all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and they began to speak in other tongues or other languages as the Spirit enabled them. Now there were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard them speaking in his own language. Utterly amazed, they asked, "Are, are not all these men who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in his own native language? Parthians, Medes and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and in the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed. And perplexed, they asked one another, What does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them. Said, They've had too much wine. They've been drinking. Then Peter stood up with the eleven. He raised the voice and he addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews, and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These men are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine o'clock in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. And they will prophesy. Tongues of fire fall from God. People begin speaking in different languages. People from all over the Roman world and beyond are hearing the gospel in their home language. What's going on here? What is God saying here? What God is saying is he's saying, when my spirit falls upon the church, Babel will be reversed. Remember the the story prehistorical account in in the book of Genesis of the Tower of Babel, that time when all the peoples of the earth decided to build a great tower stretching up into heaven that they would take the very throne of God and be like gods themselves. And the, the account in the Hebrew Bible is that God then judged this tower, this tower of Babel, which in Hebrew means confusion. And he confused the languages of the peoples of the earth so that they no longer could understand, separating them out, breaking them up so that they would not be one people, so that there couldn't be one massive totalitarian idolatry state so that there wouldn't be absolute power and our hearts that are absolutely corrupt, absolutely taking advantage of it. And it was sad, but it was necessary. And that experience here, this separation of the peoples, is part of the backstory of what's going on. Remember, this is, this is the, the Feast of Pentecost here. It's, it's Shavuot. It's, it's the Feast of Weeks. It was established in Leviticus 21 as the time for the counting of Omers, the 50th day after the Passover. And historically, it had come to be seen as the celebration of the giving of the law of God, the word of God, on top of Mount Sinai when the Jews, as, as God's chosen people, received from the God of Abraham the word of the Lord. 
And as that happened, it's recorded in Exodus 20, verse 18, that as the commandments were given, they looked up on the mountain from down below and they heard the shofar going out, the trumpet blast, and they saw, uh, the, the most English translations say lightning. They heard thunder. They heard the shofar. They saw smoke, and it says they saw lightning coming down and striking the mountain, except it's not the Hebrew word for lightning. It's not any of the Hebrew words for lightning. It's the word that's used is the Hebrew word for torch. Uh, the, the, the 1599 Geneva translation translates it, brands of fire came down upon Mount Sinai as the word of the Lord was done, as the word of the Lord was communicated. And according to very early Jewish tradition, going back to the first century in the the Talmud, Shabbat 88b, mentions the followers of Rabbi Yohanan and Rabbi Ishmael who taught this, which would go back probably into the first century, probably earlier, that as these tongues of fire came down upon Mount Sinai and the word of God was declared, it says that they heard the word of God spoken simultaneously in 70 different languages coming from Mount Sinai. 70 languages which correlate to the 70 nations and the table of nations in the book of Genesis, the table of nations of people who descended from Adam and Eve. This is the context as the disciples are gathered for Shavuot, for this celebration of the giving of the word of God atop Mount Sinai, as the tongues of fire come down again like lightning upon them and separate and land on them like lightning. And then then suddenly they start speaking in all of these different languages And God is doing something because God is signaling that that hope from the earliest days of reversing Babel, that hope that the word of God would reach not just the Jews, but all the peoples of the earth, they're seeing that already God is is initiating the steps for the reversal of the separation, the reversal of the confusion, the reversal of Babel. God is saying the separation of the peoples Now begins the end of the separation as a people from every tongue and tribe and people and nation are brought together into a new family, a new movement, which brings them all together in my servant Jesus so that all of humanity might worship me together in a single voice despite their many languages. And this narrative continues through Acts because at this point, these are only actual Jewish people. All of the Christians were Jewish at this point. All of Jesus' followers. They weren't even called Christians yet. They were just Jews who recognized their Messiah as as Yeshua, or Jesus, from Nazareth. And here they are, seeing the promise coming full. And yet, as the gospel then goes beyond Jerusalem and beyond Judea, it reaches Samaria in chapter 8 of the book of Acts, sometime later. And the Samaritans start to believe in Jesus as well. And the Jewish Christians, they're confused because they're like, these people aren't circumcised. These people aren't real Jews. They are half-breeds. They intermingled with the goyim. They are unclean. They're filthy. They're dirty. They have a corrupted Torah that they made up half of it themselves. They're idolaters. They're awful. And now they're worshiping Jesus. God, what do we do with this? Do we baptize them? I mean, they stink. And before they can decide, the Spirit of God falls on them and they too start speaking in other languages. 
And then they say, we can't deny them baptism. The Spirit of God has fallen upon them. They have testified to Jesus and they have been baptized with the Spirit of God. Therefore, we will baptize them. Now, the church, salvation is open to Jew and to half-Jewish Samaritans. But the gospel keeps spreading, just like Jesus said it would when he said it'll go from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. In chapter 2, it fell on Jews. On chapter 8, it fell on half-Jews. In chapter 10, Cornelius a Roman centurion and God-fearer, which meant he believed in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He tried to follow the law of God. He had not yet converted to Judaism. He had not yet been circumcised. His sons had not yet been circumcised. He was a Roman of the Italian regiment. And he believes the gospel. And he's then filled with the Holy Spirit. And so now the gospel is going not just to Jews and to half-Jews, but to Jews, half-Jews, and Gentiles who are committed to the God of Abraham. And then you get to chapter 19 of the book of Acts, and John's disciples, disciples of John the Baptist, who had not yet received Christian baptism, they were not yet Christians, but as they're hearing about Jesus, this falls upon them too. So that now the gospel is open even to the non-Christian who will come to Jesus. It's open to everyone who will come to Christ. So that by the time Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 12, he views this baptism of the Holy Spirit as something that's universal to all Christians. There aren't two kinds of Christians, just one. If you're a Christian, he says, you have have received this. He says, you have all been baptized by one Spirit. You've all been given one Spirit to drink. But what God was doing through this whole process was saying that what I promised in the prophets is coming true. As all the nations of the earth are hearing the word of God and all the nations of the earth are coming together and the confusion of Babel is being reversed for now comes the inrushing of the Holy Spirit in a time when all peoples will come and worship the God of Abraham through his servant and son, Jesus. Now, if we've all received this experience of the Holy Spirit, we... Just because you're a Christian, you say, I've never experienced anything like that. This is not normative. This was God's way of communicating what he was doing. But if all Christians have received the Holy Spirit, that doesn't mean that we don't have responsibility in this because it's a dynamic concept in the New Testament. It's what, it's what we read earlier from Ephesians when, when, when Paul commands the Christians to be continually filled with the Holy Spirit. The Greek is a continual thing, moment by moment, being filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. What does that look like? How is that different? I don't understand it. The illustration that's often used uh, is, is of chocolate milk. Have you heard chocolate milk used as a description for this? Anybody? Is it just me? Wow, it is just me. Okay, so I'll fill you in on chocolate milk. Okay, so chocolate milk, you take a glass of milk, white, creamy milk, 2%, got to be kind of healthy, and, uh, and you can take the Hershey's syrup and you can pour the Hershey's syrup into the glass of milk. And what happens to the, do you then get chocolate milk? No, no, because where does all the, the syrup go? Yeah. So, um, be, so, so receiving the Holy Spirit happens when you believe in Jesus, because you've all been baptized into one spirit. You've all been given one spirit to drink. That doesn't necessarily mean that he's doing much in your life. What Paul says is then you need to be continually, moment by moment, filled with the Spirit. And that's when you actually start, put the spoon in and start stirring it around so that the Spirit begins to percolate through your entire life. The Spirit of God begins to fulfill your life, filling it out and giving you power. And I really don't like the illustration because I'm allergic to both milk and to chocolate syrup. 
And I'm okay saying I'm toxic, but, you know, saying that the Holy Spirit is toxic and you need to then get the toxins all through me so Greg gets anaphylaxis, it would make for a very short sermon. Uh, But I also don't really like the illustration because the reality is so much more dynamic. The Spirit of God is sovereign. Uh, The Spirit of God, by the way, is a person. He is not a force. Um, I promised I would say that. Uh, You need to understand that. Uh, This is not Star Wars. But the Spirit of God, uh, you know, he is sovereign. The Bible says he gives his gifts as he desires according to his purpose. And so there's a dynamic with the Spirit of God where we're not always the ones stirring it up. Sometimes the Spirit of God just chooses to stir. There are times when he falls upon a people and awakens them to the reality. It's what I I asked you to pray for last week when we talked about the Spirit-given burden to pray for spiritual revival. Uh, The reality is so dynamic. There are times when, when, you know, when they're choosing the first deacons in Acts chapter 6 where where the the apostles tell the people, "Look look for six men who are filled with the Holy Spirit. You know, evidently you could tell. Somebody just had a countenance and a confidence in God, and God was working through them and and changing their life, and they were just filled with the Spirit of God. You could see Jesus written all over their face. Be continually filled, moment by moment, with the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God is is something that can be quenched. You know, Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5, uh, do not put out the Spirit's fire. Do not quench the Spirit. Uh, In Ephesians 4, he writes, Do not grieve the Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. He says, Get rid of all bitterness and rage and anger and brawling and slander along with every form of of malice. What What he's getting at is, if your bitterness is taken over your heart, you are not filled with the Spirit because you are not believing the gospel. See, bitterness is a form of judging. Criticism is a form of judging someone. And when you're judging them, you're renouncing the gospel of Christ because you're assuming that you're better and that you are something other than a pardoned rebel yourself. Paul's saying if you want the fullness of the Spirit, you've got to believe the gospel and believe it in a way that it sinks deep into your heart and shapes how you look at the people who hurt you, how you love the people who are your enemies, how you have compassion, how you're a life-giving spirit because the Lord is in you and you're believing Jesus when he says that he is your only righteousness and that you are clothed with his holiness as an act of grace. See, the Spirit of God is going to work in your life if you stand on the gospel, if you believe it. You've got to believe it for yourself, though. That's the starting point. The the reality is I haven't come up with any illustration better than chocolate milk, so it's kind of what we've got to work with. Uh, But uh, another option is to describe it sort of like sleep, what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit. It's, It's a weird command. Be filled. Now, who's doing the filling? Well, the Holy Spirit is. Okay, then, then why am I instructed to be filled? It's a passive command, a passive imperative. It's like saying, receive a million dollars. Okay, somebody want to give me a million dollars? Yeah. Uh, it's sort of like the gift of sleep in that we can't actually make ourselves sleep, but there are things you can do to resist sleep. Staying up late, turning the television on, thinking about something that kind of gets your blood boiling, starting a new project at 11.30 at night, Uh, getting on the internet, checking your phone, all sorts of things you can do to resist sleep. And there are things you can do to put yourself in a position where you're ready to receive the gift of sleep. Uh, You know, clearing your mind. If there's something on your mind, writing it down on a piece of paper and putting it by the bed. If you wake up in the middle of the night, you've got the little pad, you can write it down so you can fall back asleep and not stew over it all night wide awake. 
Uh, there are things you can do about personal sleep hygiene. Are you exercising more than two hours beforehand? Are you not eating a meal right before you go to bed? If you struggle with insomnia, you know this well. You cannot make yourself sleep. It is a precious gift, but you can resist it. And there are also things you can do to make yourself receptive of it. Be continually filled with the Holy Spirit, being receptive to his presence and his power in your life by believing the gospel, by living the gospel. Jack Miller says it this way. He says, any promise of God, including the promise of the Holy Spirit, has an implied call to repentance and faith, to to stop questioning and disbelieving the promise of the Spirit, but instead to claim the promise, to believe Jesus for his fullness. You know, Miller emphasizes the Father's willingness to give his Holy Spirit to believers as they seek him in prayer. Are you seeking God? Are you crying out to him? Are you asking for his fullness, his power to be at work in your life, in your relationships, in your soul? Are you repenting of sins? Is there anybody that you've asked forgiveness for recently? Are you surrendering to his will? Are you humbling yourself so that God can exalt you? Is your walk with God where you want it to be? If not, you need the Spirit of God to work in your life. You cannot do it without him. And yet God says he is available and ready, already in your life and ready to fill you. But the call is to believe and to turn to him, and to trust the gospel. You know, you don't need to be afraid of the Holy Spirit. He is a person, he's not a force, and yet specifically he is the Spirit of Jesus, who Jesus said, I will send you my Spirit. And it is the Spirit of Jesus who points you again and again to Christ, your friend. You know Jesus. You don't need to be threatened by him. And the Spirit of God is there to point you to him. And yet it is real. Very, very real. Dan Doriani tells a story about a time when he was planting a church years ago, and uh, a friend of his had had a severe viral infection to his heart. The result is very, very similar to the, the effect of a heart attack. And uh, as his friend was stressing and, 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 and really seemingly on the verge of death with this very severe viral uh, condition, um, you know, they wanted to get together to pray for him, and yet the church was very Presbyterian, and so they weren't real sure how to pray, so they set up a study committee to spend six weeks investigating whether or not God still heals people and how we should therefore pray. All the while, Dan was hoping this guy doesn't die. Finally, after six weeks, they, they got together. Uh, it was a, a, a professor and, and, and a pastor and some Christians gathering over this guy who was white as a sheet. He was frail. His skin was ashen and gray. He was really on death's door. And uh, as they got ready to pray, the pastor explained that we shouldn't expect miracles, that, you know, uh, you know, there are all sorts of ways that God heals, and he doesn't usually do supernatural physical healing, but, but it, maybe his, his spiritual heart could be healed even if his physical one wasn't. And then Dan's sitting here thinking, this is not what my skeptical heart really needs to hear right now. But they began praying, and after everybody had prayed, it was Dan's turn to pray, and he says, and this is vice president of Covenant Seminary, he says, as he began praying with his hand on this guy, he said it, was, it felt like fire coming on and through his arm. It was like lightning was shooting through his arm into this other guy. It was burning him. It was so powerful. And as they were praying, he wanted to cry out, we have to stop praying for God to heal him now and start thanking God that he's already healed him. 
And, but he didn't say anything because it's Presbyterians and they think he's weird. And uh, so they all went home and uh, two days later he saw the guy. He was totally pink again. He was happy. He was healthy. He, he said, look at this. And he ran up a couple flights of stairs and back and he was not even winded. And he said, you know when I was healed, I was healed Tuesday night when we prayed. And Dan said, yeah, I know. I could heal. I could feel it. And he responded, I felt it too. That's when it happened. And that's the power of God. Now, this didn't happen 30 other times. There were plenty of times they had prayed and the Spirit of God did not heal. There were other times when they prayed and God healed in other ways, maybe spiritually working in someone's heart or giving us a new hope of the resurrection. It's not that that this was a, a supernatural healing gift or anything. It's that the Spirit of God is sovereign and the Bible tells us to keep in step with the Spirit of God. I remember George Stulak, the former senior pastor here, was, was driving down uh, Clayton Road one day. This was years ago. And I remember talking to him about it at the time. And, and uh, he had this, this sense uh, of God talking to him and saying he didn't hear anything, but he knew God was saying, you need to go check on Bobby, not his real name. Uh, and George was like, unsure, but it kept coming to him. You need to check on Bobby. So he turned around, he drove a few blocks away, and he went to Bobby's house, and he knocked on Bobby's door. There was no answer. He checked the door. It was locked. But he could see Bobby's car in the driveway. So he walked around to the back door and he knocked. There was no answer. He tried the door. It was open. He walked in, into the basement. And there on the basement floor was Bobby with a bottle of pills next to his hand, empty, frothing at the mouth, unconscious. He called 911, got him to a hospital. It saved his life. Probably saved his soul. You know, that's the power of God. It's real. This is freaky stuff, but you don't need to be afraid of the Holy Spirit. It is the Spirit of Jesus who loves you. Now, granted, I know there have been a million Christians who have done really unwise things because they had a burning in their bosom or a quiver in their liver. And, you know, this was pretty clear, though. This was an unusual thing. And he was just open and willing that God might be telling him to do something. And in that it seemed wise anyway, he followed and trusted the Holy Spirit. Jesus is saying, I'm going to pour out my Spirit on your church and, and when it does, all kinds of people are going to come in. Babel's going to be reversed because of the power of God. Now, the other thing I want you to hear is when the Spirit of God falls, Jesus is saying, you're going to worship me unhindered. Did you notice how they worshipped? It says they declared the wonders of God when the Spirit moved. Uh, they weren't real worried. People thought they were drunk. It was kind of a spectacle. It probably looked silly, but they weren't concerned about what other people thought. They were responding directly to a move of God. That's unhindered worship where you're self-forgetful. It's not the kind of uh, uh, expressive worship where you're saying, hey, everybody, look at me. I'm having a worship experience. No, it's self-forgetful. They were doing all of this, but it was because they, their gaze was on their, their Savior, Jesus, at the right hand of God, who was pouring out His Spirit. It wasn't self-focused, it was self-forgetful, unhindered worship, where we worship God with our heart as well as our head, where our, our passions and our sorrows and our joys are all being expressed to God because, because we love God. You know, you can tell the difference when you're singing to somebody that you think you're supposed to sing in your room full of people and you're supposed to sing, you know what that singing sounds like. You also know what it sounds like when you're singing to someone you love and who loves you and that you're loyal to and that you're delighting in. I pray for that kind of devotion. J.I. Packer talks about it. Uh, he talks about the, what he calls 
emotion-finding expression in worship. He says there's an emotional element in the makeup of every human individual to be expressed in genuine appreciation and welcoming of another's love, whether it be the love of a spouse or the love of Christ. And he says charismatic Christians, in a book in which he's criticizing the charismatic movement for 10 different things, he first praises the charismatic movement for 12 things, for being Christ-centered, for believing the promise of the Holy Spirit, for being free to express emotion in worship. And he says charismatic Christians often get this. They, they, they have this provision for an exuberance of sight and sound and movement, and corporate worship caters to this. He says, in the interests of decency and order and perhaps social respectability too, Deadpan physical restraint has long been the conventional way to express reverence in worship in the English-speaking world. And any branch of this normie, writes, becomes at once suspect. But what makes charismatics more demonstrative, however, is not a lack of reverence for God, but a fullness of happy love of Jesus Christ and Christian people. He says, anyone who has shared in the holy hugging of charismatic congregations or seen charismatic bishops dancing in the church, as I have, knows that. Granted, charismatic forms of emotional expression can easily become an exhibitionist routine, not self-forgetful. They can become an exhibitionist routine, he writes, but then cool bodily stillness with solemn fixity of face can equally be expression of a frigid, heartless formalism. Between these two, you may make your choice, but by scriptural standards, there is no doubt that a disorderly liveliness, the overflow of love and joy in God, is preferable to a tidy deadness that lacks both. And he sums it up this way. He says, a living dog, after all, is better than a dead lion. You know, to have hearts, regardless of your theology, to have hearts that are moved by God with an exuberant joy in God that is not worried about what other people think, that is self-forgetful, so that somebody might even look at you and say, I think he's been drinking. That's, that's a longing I have for us to express the wonders of God. That's what they were declaring. They were worshiping God with other people watching. It's what happens when the Spirit of God falls. Babel is reversed, and God's people gain an unhindered worship and delight in God that pushes them outward in mission. And that's because this is the purpose of Christ for this final era, the purpose of Christ, that Jesus would bless us. You know, you, you say, Greg, I still don't get what I'm supposed to do. Let me point you this way. If you want the Spirit of God, if you want to see his power in your life, look at Jesus, because when the Spirit of God falls on the church, they're not all talking about the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God falls on the church, and they're declaring the wonders of God. That's salvation history. They're talking about the great and mighty deeds through which Christ purchased us for salvation. You want to be filled with the Spirit? Look at Jesus. Look at his cross. Look at his love for you. Look at his free grace given to you. Look at the loyalty with which he delights in you, in which he's carved your name into the palm of his hand as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, as the very Son of God, the Eternal One, the author of life, who gives his life for you and pours out his Spirit on you. You want to receive the power of his Spirit. Look the direction they were looking. Look at Jesus. And when Jesus gets hold of your heart by the Spirit, 
You know, you're not going to be focused on the Spirit of God. You'll be empowered by the Spirit of God to look at Jesus as the Spirit of God is the one who stands behind you, over your shoulder, shining a spotlight over you at Jesus, saying, look at the sun and be ye filled. Let's pray. Oh, Father, I thank you for your love, for your faithfulness, and for your goodness. Oh, Lord, I pray you would start our engines where they are lacking. Restart them, Lord, with the power of your Spirit. Come down upon us. Fill us, fill your church with power that we might declare your wonders in all the earth. For you, Lord, are the faithful one. We worship you and we praise you in the name of Christ. Amen. You know, as that bombardier was barreling toward the earth, falling 10,000 feet in a matter of seconds, the pilots reached out. They started flicking buttons, pushing switches, turning knobs, all sorts of stuff. And then they waited. And they waited. And they waited. And as their plane plunged down toward the earth, they felt the pullback as the engines kicked in, as all the lights came on, as the controls became responsive, and as they saw what was before them then become under them, and the horizon again was before them, and they were able to land safely in Muscat, in Oman. Because the Spirit of God is real, friends. He can start your engines. And so I say, the Lord be with you. And also with you. And lift up your hearts. We lift them up to the Lord. And let us give thanks to the Lord our God. It is good and right to give him thanks and praise. It is good and right to give him thanks and praise.